Thank you. Just a couple of uh, quick and more noticey type things. Just to say, uh, you may well have heard that at the end of this year, I'm going to have a sabbatical, uh, going to take a term and uh, not be here, going to go to America, going to go to Holland. And uh, I've been full-time uh, involved in the church, I think, for about 14, 15 years now. And uh, been wondering for a few years about whether I should do a sabbatical. And uh, God is always is very gracious, and I kind of ummed and ahed, and what about this, and what about that? And to be honest with you, I didn't want to have one. Uh, that was my initial thing. I don't, I, uh, I don't take it that I've kind of earned one. Uh, I, I don't go with that. And uh, for a number of years now, I've been wondering, and eventually God said to me one day, uh, you're going to take one, and it got to that moment. You know that moment where you can debate with God and talk it through, and it goes on maybe a few weeks, a few months, even a few years. And then there's a moment where God says, no, do it now. And if you don't, you're going to be rebellious. So I said, okay, I'm going. So I'm going uh, to have this sabbatical. I'll give you more details about it as it gets close to the time, maybe at the next prayer meeting. I've got some plans of things that I want to do, places that I want to go. But just wanted to give you the heads up on that. And also, second thing, I just want to make a, a note of a date, the 12th of March. A bit weird, I know, but we're going to have a Vision Sunday on the 12th of March. Now, I say that's weird because most people have it in January or have it in September, but we're going to have it in March because it just didn't feel right to have it in January. It just didn't feel it was right, but now we feel it's right to have it. So on the 12th of March, if you're able to be here, I really would encourage you to be here. want to update about how things are going, but also want to basically bring you in on some really serving the community initiatives that God is opening up for us. Uh, things like the winter night shelter, uh, helping refugees, some other bits and pieces in the school. Just seems since January, God has just opened some doors for us and uh, want to share some of those things with you and encourage you to get involved. So there you go, 12th of March. I know it's a funny day to have a Vision Sunday, but uh, that's what we're going to go for. Is that all right? Good. I'm going to try and not preach too long this morning, or not preach any longer than I normally would, to leave us time so that God can fill us with his Holy Spirit. Amen? <laughs> that's where I feel, that's where we're going, uh, so we'll leave a good amount of time to do that. Between now and the summer, we're looking at uh, growing a culture of discipleship in the church, and we're going to look at the book of Matthew, and we're going to break it down into roughly seven sections, three to four uh, chapters, a section, and I think I put on the notes that I gave out the kind of little you know, summary of where we're going to go. So we're going to start off looking at chapters 1 to 4, the call to follow Jesus, chapters 5 to 9, kingdom lifestyle, 10 to 12, kingdom mission, 13 to 17, kingdom message, 18 to 22, kingdom community, 23 to 27, kingdom judgment, 28, chapter 28, the call to make disciples. We'll probably spend two weeks looking at each of those headings. And probably in the first week of those two, we'll look at what Jesus taught. And then in the second of those two Sundays, we'll look at how he demonstrated. Because Jesus didn't teach unless he was then going to demonstrate exactly what it was that he was teaching about. And so that's where we're going to go for the rest of this term. So I'm really beginning. This is kind of just a, an opening. Uh, Tim's going to follow it on next week. We're looking at Matthew's call to follow 
or, or Jesus' call to Matthew to follow him, kind of looking at chapters 1 to 4. So let me pray and then we'll kick off. Lord Jesus, we love it when we hear about the things that you're doing, how you're healing people, how you're reaching out to people. We just love the evidence of your kingdom moving, advancing. And we pray that this morning your kingdom would advance in our lives and in our hearts. We say, Holy Spirit, would you open up our ears, would you open up our hearts to hear what it is that you want to say to us and how you want us to respond. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Matthew. Well, Matthew was a man who understood the concept of authority. He was uh, a Jew born in Roman-occupied Galilee. So him and his people were living under the occupation of the Roman Empire, courtesy of their all-conquering army. And I doubt that a Roman tax collector under Empress Tiberius was really Matthew's preferred or his favourite job option. But the facts were the Romans were in charge. They had the largest army. The, the, the Roman emperor was the ultimate authority figure of the day. But any Jew who was t- collecting taxes from fellow Jews on behalf of the Romans was going to be hated by his own people. Like anybody who decided to work for an occupying uh, nation. Just imagine, it's terrible I know, but just imagine the French occupying our nation. Just imagine, they've tried, you know, to be fair, we've tried with them, so, you know, let's not throw stones here, but let's just imagine the French occupied England, wash my mouth out, and then me collecting taxes from you and then sending it to Paris. You wouldn't like me so much then, would you? Sounds familiar. Yeah, that's a whole other story. That's one we haven't got time to get into today. See, Matthew had not started out as a traitor to his nation, collecting these taxes for the hated Roman occupiers. His parents named him after the leader of the priestly tribe of Israel, Levi, the tribe that Moses came from, the tribe that Aaron came from. No doubt his parents named him because they had a desire, a strong hope that he would follow God, their God, the God of Israel. And yet here is their son serving the Roman emperor and the Roman Empire. And then suddenly their prayers are answered and everything changes for Matthew. We actually read the best account of it in Luke verse 5. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Matthew. It might say in your Bible, Levi. That's just the, Matthew is just the translation of that name. It's the same person, don't worry. A tax collector by the name of Matthew sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Matthew got up, left everything, and followed him. Now this can seem almost matter of fact or so familiar to us that we miss how radical it is. But Matthew clearly understood that the call by Jesus to follow Jesus wasn't simply a metaphor, wasn't simply some nice theoretical idea. He didn't say, great, okay, see you next Sunday at the temple or whatever. He resigned, he got up. He left his tax booth, he left his old job behind him, and he followed Jesus. In an instant, he gave up his old master. 
In an instant, he gave up his master's money. One minute, he is dancing to the tune of Emperor Tiberius, collecting taxes for him, no doubt taking a slice for himself, because that's what tax collectors generally did, and which is why they were even more hated than just their job. One minute, he is dancing to that tune, and the next, he is following after King Jesus. You see, something in Matthew's background helped him understand what the gospel and following Jesus really meant. Even the way Matthew writes this book, he uses the Greek word for kingdom 56 times in just the 28 chapters of this book because he wants us to learn, to understand that conversion to Jesus Christ means submitting to him as king. Conversion to Christ, becoming a Christian, means we submit to him as king. The gospel means surrendering to Jesus as our king and then surrendering our lives to advancing the cause of his kingdom. See, this word kingdom, you can read Matthew and you can miss that Jesus' call is to surrender to him as king and now to live as part of and to advance and to get our identity from being part of his kingdom, not whichever nation we happened to be born into. But it is pretty clear. John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 2, summarizes the gospel message as, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus summarizes the gospel message, Matthew 4, 17, Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus tells us what our own gospel message needs to be in Matthew 10, 7. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So in the first four chapters of Matthew, God seems intent on revealing himself in deeply unimpressive and provoking ways. I don't know if you've ever realized this as you've read it. But in a sense, it's very challenging, very provoking, very unimpressive. He isn't trying to persuade us that he can make our lives better. He can and he does, but that's not where he starts. That's not where he begins. Rather, Jesus presents us with clear evidence that he's the king of heaven's kingdom, which has now come near, which is now at hand, which is now on your doorstep, the kingdom is now staring you and I and Matthew in the face and therefore demands our immediate and unconditional surrender. So this pattern, Matthew, follow me, immediately he followed him, is to be this repeated pattern. And it's as if God deliberately goes out of his way to test our desire, to see if our desire to serve him is out of surrender or out of our self-seeking. Are we really, is Matthew, did the disciples, did you and I, did we really surrender to Jesus because we were genuinely surrendering to him as our king? Or are we following because we think he might be a king and somehow if we follow a king, then because he's a king, we might get some of the things that we think we want? Are we really surrendering to him as king, no matter what? Or actually, do we think, well, he may be a king, and do you know what? If I follow this king, then maybe I'll get some of the things that I want in my life. So Matthew begins this book with the verse, 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, etc., etc. In other words, Matthew says, look, this is Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one sent by God. He's the king of God's people. And then he basically offends us. He basically offends human sensibilities about who a king should be, what a king should be like. We may not realize it, but we and the disciples in Jesus' day, we have our own preconceived ideas, agreed wisdom about who a king should be. And God challenges these in the early versions of Matthew. I've written down some ways that he did that. Jesus was conceived by an unmarried peasant girl. That's who Mary was, an unmarried 16, 17-year-old peasant girl. How many kings do you know or do you read of in your history books have been born in such circumstances? Down through the history, crowns, thrones, nations have been fought over. Men and women have died over this issue. Who is the rightful king or queen? The most popular TV show at the moment is Game of Thrones. It's all about who is the rightful king, who is the rightful queen. And that question always starts with asking who the parents were. Because if you work out who the parents were, then you can work out how strong a claim does this individual have to be a king or a queen. Well, Jesus' mum was an unmarried peasant girl. It's not a very promising start, is it, on your CV to be a king? Second one, Jesus' birth was generally ignored by the Jewish rabbis, the people of Jerusalem, the movers and shakers in the nation. It was generally ignored. One old man in the temple got excited, but then he died. Three men came and gave some gifts, but then they seemed to go again. Do you remember when Kate and Wills had their first baby? Do you remember? National, you know, Daily Mail, pages 1 to 47. It wasn't, it was just everywhere. And it wasn't just our press. Our press reported the world press. A king, the, the, the baby who will be king is born. And the, 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 you know, the media goes mad. Mugs, tea towels, calendars, boxes of biscuits. With the baby's boxes of biscuits. Madness. Why? It's because when a king is born, everyone makes a fuss. It's an important event. Do you know, at a national level, even among most of his own people, Jesus' birth was a complete non-event. Third one, Jesus was hated and hunted, almost murdered by King Herod. You see, baby kings are protected. They're, they're behind the walls of palaces. They, they grow up in castles. They have guards with funny hats and shoes and whatever else. It's because that, that baby is so important. They'll be king or queen one day. You're not going to be able to get in there and do anything to them. Yet Jesus was hunted. His parents ran. Takes us to, to, to our next point. Jesus became a fugitive, an asylum seeker as a toddler. Did, when you read the pages of Matthew, we see that. His parents had to move. They had to give up their home. They had to move because there was an evil dictator who was bringing death and destruction. Maybe that will touch our hearts next month when we look at how we can get involved in helping the refugee crisis that's going on. Jesus understands. Jesus knows what that is like. Most of us, thank God, don't know. But Jesus 
knows what that's like. It's not a very impressive CV, is it? As a king. Not really, not really is it? It's not really a very impressive. His claim to the throne is not really very impressive by things so far. Then we look. Jesus, it says, grew up in a despised backwater of Nazareth. Rather than being in the, the capital's sophisticated, you know, capital, the nation's capital. You know, when somebody once heard about Jesus, they said, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? How can anything, forget who Jesus is, how can anything good come out of there? How can anything good, not even a king, just anything good? What kind of, what kind of rubbish place must you come from when even the mention of that place, someone says, well, how can anything good come out of there? Not only was the manner and the circumstances of his birth, but the actual place of his birth were derided as a place where nothing good can ever come from, let alone a king. And Jesus, you know, he burst onto the scene and into public ministry, but it wasn't through graduating from the leading school of rabbis. He didn't, he didn't kind of go through the Oxbridge, you know, mold of like we may have today. He came from nowhere. He came from nowhere. He came out of nowhere. It wasn't like he was the rising star, the rising star through, you know, through university, the rising star through the political ranks. He wasn't the rising star that suddenly became the MP, that suddenly became the prime minister. He came from nowhere. And even, even there in nowhere, where he came from, people said he couldn't have been anything special because they said, we know him, we grew up with him, we know his dad, we know his brothers, he was a carpenter. He can't be anything because we know him and we know we're from nowhere. Are you with me? Even the people he grew up with. See, they knew that they weren't kings. They knew they weren't. And they said, well, hang on, if we, we know we're not kings and yet we grew up with Jesus. We know his dad, we know his brother. He can't be a king because kings don't come from where we are. Kings are not like us. So therefore, he can't be. And then Jesus' arrival, heralded by this long-haired, locust-eating desert dweller called John. Right? The king's coming. The king of heaven is coming. What shall we do? I know. Let's get some long-haired, locust-eating desert dweller called John. This prophet whose job was to declare this new king's come to town. But, you know, he didn't exactly set up the PR campaign that you and I might have expected. He told the religious leaders in Matthew 3, 7, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Not exactly a catchy slogan, is it? Hey, L'Oreal, you're worth it. It's not exactly there, is it? You brood of vipers, who told you to flee on your bellies, your snakes? How about this for his follow-up? Don't think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Basically, he calls them a bunch of lying snakes who are just trying to escape the rightful judgment and punishments that's going to come on them for deceiving the people. And don't try and play the family card. But my great-great-granddad is Abraham because that's not going to save you. His PR campaign states clearly that Jesus was the king of heaven and failure to receive him had severe consequences. He tells them this. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a farming metaphor. Wheat, good stuff, chaff, bad stuff. Get the winnowing fork, in you go, clear it out, burn one, keep the other. 
This was John's message ahead of Jesus. John even commanded the Jews who wanted to repent and get ready for this coming new king to be baptized in water. Now I hear the gasp from you. It's deafening. Because we don't, we don't understand. We don't understand the radical, shocking offense this is. But you see, you have to put yourself back in the, in the, the, the Jew of the day who John was speaking to. They didn't need to be baptized in water because they were born Jewish. That's who their parents, their grandparents, they, were, they, were, they believed that they were the people of God simply by virtue of who their mum and dad were. But in those days, if you wanted to become part of God's people and your parents weren't Jewish, then you would be referred to as you were filthy Gentiles. Filthy Gentiles, filthy non-Jews. And you had to be baptized in water because it was a public declaration that there was nothing of God in your ancestry, nothing of God in your heritage. And so for a Jew to be publicly baptized was an admission that their Jewishness had no power to save them. It didn't matter who their daddy or great-great-granddaddy was. They were sinners just like every other person on the earth. And this was as offensive to them as it could be. See, I think we often read these first four chapters of the book of Matthew about Jesus' birth and the beginning of his ministry, and we think, oh, that's nice. Look at that, born in a lovely stable. Oh, how lovely. Be like, a, be like glamping that, wouldn't it? <laughs> lovely fire going. And then the kings came and gave him, you know, a bit of money, put that away. He went on a bit of a road trip with his parents. That'd be nice. You know, they had to move, didn't they? Probably a bit like, you know, just having a look around. And, and then, you know, he was a carpenter, quietly in his little studio, you know, just carpentering away. He wasn't out in the, in, in the desert sun sweating and doing proper hard work. No, no, he's in some little, nice little, you know, backwater, just, you know, soaring away. And then he wandered around, la, 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 calling people to him. So it's all a bit tea and fancy, isn't it? If Mr. Kipling made saviors, Jesus would be an exceedingly great savior. We can read Matthew and we can think that, but that's not how it is. If we read it properly, then we're confronted with a God who does not try to win followers by offering them a better lot in life. But by telling them that he's the king, he's the king, and they're rebels. The kingdom is at hand, I'm the king of it, and you're rebels. And they have just moments to lay down their weapons because he's about to fight against them to restore order to his realm. That's what John the Baptist is doing. He didn't go there and say, oh, come on, I know you lovely Pharisees, you've been nice, really. No, no, he said, you brood of vipers, who told you, now repent, because the king's coming. Jesus is more, he's not one who's kind of offering that life is going to become like a long weekend spa break. Follow me, your life will become like a long weekend spa break. Jesus is more like one who's issuing an ultimatum to a hostage taker that he's about to send in the SWAT team and they're going to be destroyed. And they need to lay down their weapons immediately. So why does God challenge and offend us this way? Well, the reason why he's deliberately challenging our view of what a king should be. And actually, can Jesus be the king, he says, through how he's born and the circumstances around his birth? is because he wants to challenge our pride. 
pride, that thing inside of us that says we know best. We know how it is. We know how it should be. And if it's not how it should be, then we'll tell God how it should be. It's that thing of pride, which has been described as the mother of all sin. Because at root it says, we don't believe in God, we don't need God. And in fact, you know what? We know better than God. The Bible says such strong things about human pride. It says in Psalm 10, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. 1 John 2.16 For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. You see, we do have a problem in many churches in the Western world today. And many of those problems stem from the fact that our underlying and our, ex- our understanding and our explanation of the gospel sidesteps this issue of pride and sin. We never really face people up to it. We don't want to be so challenging with ourselves or with others. But you see, if we're told that Jesus is the answer to our deepest needs, uh, that the best way of getting the things in life that we really are ambitious for, then we will probably respond with a prayer of acceptance and then we will wait to see if what has been promised will be delivered. If that's the message we give to people, come Jesus will meet your needs, people may say a prayer of acceptance and then they'll wait to see whether he's going to do what it is that they think he should do. You told me Jesus would make my life wonderful, so I prayed the prayer and now I'm waiting to see if he does or not. And let's be honest, if you're like me, I can think of all manner of wonderful things that God should do for me to make my life more wonderful. Like the story of the genie in the lamp, we could all probably think of unlimited, unlimited times we could rub it and God would appear. Do this for me, O God. However, if we're told that Jesus is the King of kings, whether we like it or not, He is the king of kings. Then we may respond, but it won't be with a prayer of acceptance and a wait and see. It will be with a prayer of surrender. We get up from our knees with a, but it's not to see what he's going to do for us, but it's with an understanding that I've now made a commitment to live for him. We may get off our knees sensing that God will bless us in a thousand different ways, but we know that our focus needs to be on obedience and following him as Lord and King. We haven't signed up for a life improvement plan, so now let's see some improvement. But rather, we agreed to die to our selfish and worldly ambition and desire so that he could raise us to a new life. And guess what? This new life doesn't mean we're going to get all the wonderful things that we thought we desired in our old life. How mad would that be? Jesus saves us from our old life, our old way of thinking, our old desires, and then we get saved and we get upset with him when he doesn't deliver all those things that we wanted when we lived over here. It's why the offence of Jesus' poverty, his insequential birth, the offence in John's call to baptism dominates these first few chapters of Matthew because the only way to create real followers of Jesus is to proclaim the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the king of heaven and humans are rebels who need to surrender. It's not a very popular message to declare at the moment. It's never been a popular message to declare. 
But fortunately, God understands the long haul, the big picture. You see, as we go through the book of Matthew, what we're going to discover is that Jesus understands that his complete refusal to appease people, to flatter their sinful egos, their sense of pride and self-worth, is going to cause many to reject him. But you know, he does nothing to compromise his message. He doesn't play the numbers game. It's either surrender or it's nothing. Let me just give you two examples. In the First World War, the Allies made peace with Germany as soon as they surrendered instead of pushing on to capture in Berlin. And 20 years later, that very fact proved to be decisive in the reason for the Second World War, a war in which millions more people died. You know, in the first Gulf War, the coalition made terms as soon as the Iraqis surrendered, and 10 years later, that led in part to the Second World War. In fact, it's not true to say that the Iraqis surrendered because what actually happened was that after the collapse of Kuwait, as the Iraqi army was withdrawing, really the Americans and the generals didn't quite know what to do. They didn't quite know what the game plan was. And they decided that to get them out of Kuwait and to grind down their army was what they were going to do. And so what happened was the... Um, the Iraqis never actually surrendered. They never actually were given terms by the Americans. In fact, they retreated with one quarter of their tanks and half their armoured personnel carriers. Saddam later boasted that Bush had yielded the war, not Saddam, for the Iraqi leader had never asked for terms. The professor of military history at Texas University says this, the Republican Guard pulled off a desert Dunkirk to fight another day. I'm not, I'm not saying these, words, these wars were good or right. I'm just saying it's a sad truth that unless you actually deal with something fully from the start, you are probably going to have greater problems in the future. And God knows that full and unconditional surrender from the outset is best. He knows that accepting Jesus fully from the start is better in the long run. I put in your notes a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'll read it because I just think that C.S. Lewis put some things better than anybody. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it's far easier than what we are trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet, at the same time, be good. We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. I'm a field that contains nothing but grass seed. If, a fi if I'm a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, 
but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be ploughed up and re-sown. So why is this important to us on a wider scale? Well, I haven't got time, but in your notes, I just put down some stats about the fact that our nation, the continent of Europe, and the Brexit vote doesn't change the fact we are still part of this continent of Europe, and God would still have us praying and planting churches and trying to reach the continent that we're part of. But the truth is that we are not doing very well. There are figures down there where you can see church attendance in the UK decline by 41% between 1979-2005. You can see uh, the fact that it's mostly children of believers who are getting saved while they're children. Generally, things are bad across the UK. We are somewhat of an exception. There aren't many churches in Tandridge who could take away 25 young people. In fact, the reality is, as it says, 60% of churches have nobody in that kind of upper teenage range. That doesn't make me glad. That breaks my heart. That's a terrible thing. But we must understand the reason for it so that we make sure we don't go the same way and so that we know what to pray for in terms of this nation. See, our problem in the UK is not that the gospel isn't true or doesn't work. Our problem is that we have reduced the gospel down and we've made it into something that it is not. We've made it either into God's self-help plan for our lives or we have reduced it down where Jesus is just a bit of a jolly nice chap and we can become nice chap and chapesses if we're a bit more like him. He hasn't really got a strong opinion about anything, got no clear definitive views about sex, about marriage, about money. He's more of that doddery mad uncle that no one listens to at the family party. That's what he's like. That's what we have reduced him down. The church generally in the UK and Europe is in freefall because we've stopped preaching and stopped living and stopped believing that Jesus is the king who commands complete surrender. That he calls us to lay down our weapons of selfishness, ambition and greed and to enlist in his army and to give our lives not in the pursuit of happiness or wealth or power or recognition but in the pursuit to see his kingdom come on earth. There's no problem with the gospel in the UK or in Europe. It's just it's been watered down. It's been untried. It's been forgotten. It's been deemed non-essential. It's been compromised by the church and Christians until it's no longer look or feels or smells like the gospel. It's been untaught and undemonstrated in the lives of people who profess to follow him. In other parts of the world, the gospel's doing very well. Thank you very much. In fact, it's doing exactly as God said it would do. I've again given you some figures there. In terms of Africa, conservative estimates, 633 million estimated by 2025. By the middle of this century, there'll be 3 billion Christians in the world, one and a half times the number of Muslims. In fact, by 2050, there will be as nearly as many Pentecostal Christians in the world as there are Muslims today. I looked at the FT, November 14, they reported how there are now 100 million Christians in China, eclipsing the 87.6 million in the Communist Party. Someone said, for China's authoritarian leaders who despise and fear any force not under their direct control, this seemingly unstoppable trend is disturbing. Problem is, it's not an unstoppable trend. It's an unstoppable kingdom. The real gospel will produce the results God said it would in any nation, 
in any generation in which it's preached. There's a new king in town. His name is Jesus and he demands your complete surrender and allegiance. Question, is this the gospel to which you have responded? (laughs) Is this the gospel? Because God can only build his kingdom in our lives once we've cleared away the rubbish. Have we surrendered all to Jesus? Do we live? Do we live humbly before him as Savior and Lord and Master? Is this the gospel that we're proclaiming through our lives, through our actions, to those that we live with, work with, rub shoulders as we go through life? See, Jesus states his terms pretty clearly later on in Matthew. They're terms which come with a challenge, but they also come with a wonderful promise. See, in Matthew 16, Jesus says this to his disciples. Here's the challenge. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. As I did, said Jesus, you've got to deny yourselves. Jesus would have preferred to stay in heaven with his Father and the Holy Spirit. It was much nicer than being born in a stable. It was much nicer than dying on a cross. He would rather have done that, but he didn't. He denied himself. He took up his cross. Not only did he take up his cross, but he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. And he followed his Father God. There's the challenge to his disciples. The challenge is, will you do exactly as I did? But here's the promise. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. In other words, you humans think you've been living real life, but real life is knowing me, knowing me and my Father. Therefore, if you will give down your life, if you will surrender to me, if you will lay aside those ambitions that everybody else goes for of power and worth and money and all that kind of stuff, if you will die to that, I will give you true life. I will give you myself. I will give you relationship with my Father and myself. I just wonder this morning whether there's someone here who feels the call of God this morning to surrender their life to Jesus. I wonder whether I could ask you just to bow your heads for a moment. And if that's you this morning, maybe God has been calling you for some time. Maybe it's something he's just done today. But if you know you're not a Christian, but you know that God is calling you to surrender to his son Jesus. You've been fighting. You've been ducking, diving, putting him off, making excuses. I believe right now, Jesus would call you to surrender, to bow the knee, to put your faith, your trust in him. And if that's you, I'm just going to pray a prayer and I would say to you to say that prayer in your heart to him this morning. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things that I've done which have offended you for the years that I've lived in rebellion to you for the times when I've gone my own way and not your way I now surrender and kneel at your cross I lay down my worldly ambitions to find security and satisfaction in money, in status, in power, in other people. 
and I put my trust completely in you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that you were punished there so that I will not be punished on the day of judgment. Please come and be the king of my life from today. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might know your love. I might know your fatherhood but also so that I can serve you. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.